Good evening. You can turn with me to Psalms 22. Psalm 22. Just look to the Lord real quick in prayer. Father, we thank you again for the privilege it is to uh, open your word and to uh, to see what you have uh, for us and to know more about our Savior. Uh, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his word, for your word. Thank you for all that you show to us in it. Uh, Thank you for the privilege of being able to open your word and call you Father. And we just pray that your um, spirit give us good understanding uh, over the next few minutes as we um, look into your word. And we pray that whatever is said would be encouraging and edifying to the saints and also uh, glorifying to you. Lord, we just commit all this into your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, tonight we're going to be going over Psalm 22. It's a messianic psalm. It's set to uh, the deer of the dawn in the title. Uh, That's uh, interesting. A few different commentators had some thoughts on that. Some uh, have likened, and in scripture we see that the Lord is likened to a deer, a hind, as it were. And um, there's no real justification to say that this was chosen for that reason. They don't know, uh, per what I'm reading. Uh, there's no reason why. They don't know what the tune is. Um, but just topically, when you look at it, the deer of the dawn, you think this peaceful image. I was going to put a PowerPoint together. We're just going to take too much time. But I saw some pretty, pretty nice, peaceful pictures of deer in the morning. If you've never seen that, it's better than coffee. You know, it's just calming, you know. Um, peaceful. Uh, and then the Arabian poets used to use uh, the same term, the deer of the dawn, and would describe the dawning of the sun and the, the, the rays of the sun piercing through the clouds, and it would look like the antlers of a deer. Um, again, peaceful imagery. And when you look at the context and the, just what we're going to read and what we're going to see happen to the Savior, it doesn't mesh. It's not a peaceful scene. It's horrendous. It's violent. It's dark. So interesting, but it's titled The Deer of the Dawn. And it's given to the chief musician. It was written, the psalm was written by David around 1050 BC. Um, And we can divide the psalm into two parts, uh, verses 1 through 21. Um, One commentator likened it. Uh, the second part, actually, the first part would be the suffering Savior. The second part, he likened it to the singing Savior. It's an unbroken song if you um, look at it, because he starts off saying, I will declare your name in the midst of the assembly. He's leading. He's leading the, the chorus, leading the song. So you could divide it like that, but either way, the division is at 21. So let's just start at verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. Rabbi Zacharias said, he, the Lord said, why have you forsaken me? So that the individual believer wouldn't have to. That's pretty powerful. Think about that. All men will stand before their creator one day and They'll never be able to say, you forsook me. It's just not true. Over and over, we see the Lord extending his hand, as it were, to Israel 
um, the, the gospel throughout scripture, even nature it proclaims the glory of the Lord. We see this over and over again. The Lord did not forsake anyone. His hand has always been outstretched to all men. And we're going to see that. So he, that was an interesting thought. He said it so we wouldn't have to. And this idea of prayer, um, actually, uh, there was another thought. Um, I like the way this commentator wrote it. He said, the cry of abandonment shows the Lord's entrance into darkness and the words, it is finished, show his emergence from it. There's this uh, idea of the high priest going into the temple once a year with much incense is the term. And it would just fill that inner sanctuary and he couldn't see. It would be uh, invisible almost as it were. He wasn't allowed to see the glory of the Lord. And the idea is that in that darkness in the area, this exchange, this transaction between the father and the son pouring out his wrath. It was silent. But imagine, we can't... We really can't imagine what the Lord went through, but the Lord's, uh, the Father's wrath poured out on the Son. God's wrath poured out on the Son. It's unimaginable, but it was silent. And it's interesting, it's toward the end of that darkness, it says about the ninth hour is when Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? And then shortly afterwards, he gives up the ghost. And we see this, this break, this uh, break of the communion. Prayer is something the Lord was, it just was something that he was well known for. It seems you read over and over, he separated to pray. And this is something that stood out to me. Here he is on the cross itself praying for, uh, praying to the Lord. He even asked for forgiveness for those who were doing this to him. But looking through the Gospels, we see over and over, he separated himself to pray. Um, He went up into a mountain to pray. He went apart to pray. And he spent in Luke six and happened in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and he was spending the night in prayer to the Lord. So in Hebrews, um, Hebrews five, seven, um, they speak of the Lord who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. He he's known for being in prayer so much so that when, when the disciples saw him, they said, teach us to pray. He's very, very good at this, obviously. Um, and interesting that whenever, I noticed multiple times, it says he went up into a mountain, up, up. And then we see that repeated even by Peter in Acts 10. It says on the next day, he, he went up onto the housetop to pray. He was up on the mountain when he was transfigured. He saw the Lord. It, it happened to the Lord. So this idea of up, going up and praying, what is that? Why, why is that there? Um, I don't say that I fully understand, but the mountain itself is stood out as well. Um, the mountain throughout the Gospels, we see it was a place of testing. Jesus was tested there. Um, he did teaching there to the multitudes. Uh, the, the disciples were commissioned on the mountain. Um, divine revelation during the, uh, the one time when they went up to pray, he was transfigured before them and they heard the voice saying, this is my son. It was a meeting place. He told the disciples, he told actually the women, said, go tell my brethren to meet me in Galilee. That, that's interesting. We'll get to it a little later. But he says, go meet me there. It was a meeting place. But again, it was a place of prayer. He separated himself multiple times to pray. And in 6.12, is the verse where he said he spent the night praying. And uh, I, I, you just reading through the rest of that chapter, it's, 
uh, this struck me. It says he was on this mountain praying, and it's in the in the fourth watch of the night, so it's roughly between three and six in the morning. Uh, I've stood watch during that time of night. It's dark. It's not nice. It's usually cold, uncomfortable, hard to stay awake. And he's up praying. And it says, listen to these words in Mark 6:48. So then he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them. He saw them in the dark. This is between three and six. Not much light out there. Probably still very dark. But he saw them. And we're talking the Sea of Galilee, five miles across there, about three quarters of the way across. Several miles into their trip in the dark, he says he saw them rowing, struggling. It wasn't a good time. They were having a hard time. I, I couldn't help but uh, relate that to myself and, you know, thinking that it's comforting to know that our Savior sees us uh, in those dark places where we can be, um, whatever that troubling time is. And he sees us, and not only does he just see us, it says he went to them. He went to them. And when they called out to him, he responded. So that's, that's a small thought there, you know, as a, something practical that we can live out. When we come into these moments, rough times, dark times, whatever that is, however the allegory is that fits your circumstance, the Lord sees you. It's not that he doesn't. Will you call out to him when he comes? Will you call out to him when he's standing there? Zechariah 13 Actually, before we do that, uh, another thing is um, he constantly was praying, continually praying, this example of praying throughout the night. Uh, another, uh, something practical we can take away, what's, what's our prayer life like? You know, are we even, I know I'm not even anywhere near close to emulating the Lord, but to just be in prayer for your uh, coworkers, your family, while you're driving, these are things we can do, we just don't do it. Why? And here we see the Lord almost constantly in prayer. We say we're believers. We look to him. He's our Lord and Savior. Emulating him is the only thing that's obvious. Do we? It's a question we can ask ourselves. And this, just this whole scene right in the beginning. My God, why have you forsaken me? That communion in the Godhead, the community, um, that, that fellowship has been broken for that moment. The Lord took our sin on him. God cannot have anything to do with sin. He's holy. The communion was broken. And he's asking, why have you forsaken me? When our fellowship is broken, does it grieve us? Are we even aware that we're out of fellowship? These are things that we can only understand by regularly reading, regularly praying. So again, it comes back to prayer. Just some practical thoughts for day-to-day life. Zechariah 13. Brother Thomas touched on this uh, while he was here. Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says says Jehovah of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand on the little ones. It says, the man who is my companion. I don't know. That's a pretty good verse. I I was listening to some messages um, uh, about Islam and um, them refuting who Jesus was 
And this man, Nabil Qureshi, refuting back, showing from Scripture why Jesus is the Messiah, why he is the Son of God, things they find absolutely sacrilegious. And here he is, God himself saying, the man, he's not only the man, he's the shepherd, the man who is my companion. And that word companion, the context of that is neighbor. It's only used 12 times in all of Scripture. 11 of it is in Leviticus, and it always connotates neighbor. The other 12th time is in Zechariah here. Neighbor, the idea of fellowship, closeness, constant relation, talking to, being with. That's the idea, this communion, this community of the Trinity is, is, is the term that has been coined by some. That fellowship was broken. But it reminds us that he was sent by God himself. Christ was qualified by heaven to come on our behalf. No one else was worthy. He was the perfect Lamb of God. But you are holy, verse 3. But you are holy and thrown in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. The next few verses form a contrast to those verses we just read. We see the fathers who prayed and were answered. They trusted and were delivered. Here, Christ is praying, and he's not necessarily being answered that moment. Why? Why is the separation? It's a contrast. <clears throat> I am a worm, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. We see obedient fathers that were delivered, unashamed, prayers answered. We see the most obedient son ever, the only obedient son, handed over for punishment, shamed, and far from the help of his God. The hymn writer writes, Who is he on yonder tree, dies in grief and agony? Tis the Lord. And this line, you know, I never really understood it till I read it like a sentence. I think sometimes we read hymns or we sing hymns just the way that it's stated in those lines, but man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God. Totally different context, totally different effect when you read it as a sentence. How is this the son of God, a man of sorrows? He should be all powerful. I heard a thought the other day, all powerful God, man of sorrows, but yet not once do we read that the Lord used any of his supernatural power for himself. Not once. And that struck me. I was like, no, wait, I got to look through this. And I'm just quickly look through just a few things. It's always he heals miracles for others. The cross itself, it wasn't for him. The only thing you could even say is that he laid down his life and had the power to take it up. But he did that for you and me. He did nothing for himself. Selfless. So, one other thought before we go further on. It would, this would actually have been better with the PowerPoint, but uh, I'm just going to state a few uh, statements, and if you know the answer, you can just shout it out. Just say the end. So, I'm just going to say part of a sentence, and there's an obvious answer. Just say it out loud, okay? Milk chocolate melts in your mouth? Not in your head. Skittles taste the rainbow. Nobody better lay a finger on my 
You guys eat a lot of candy. That's, that's pretty good. Uh, oh, say can you see? By the dawn's early light. Okay. Uh, oh, Canada. All right. uh, we got <laughs> I was hoping to stump everyone. Thanks, Josh. All right. And I had one in Chinese, too. That would have been the one every got stumped on. Okay, the idea is this. Just a thought. When we hear something that's familiar, it just pops into your head. It just pops into your head. You don't even have to think. It just comes out. We look at the scene of the crucifixion. We have all kinds of people there. We have some common people, people walking by. It was a high day, and they always did these crucifixions right outside where everybody could see. They want to make an example. We have the elders of Israel, the high priests, the Sadducees, the common people, all these people. Specifically, though, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the elders, the people who would have studied Scripture. Have any of them ever read Psalms? Think about that. They're hearing Christ say, my God, my God, why have you? I mean, if you, just the first two words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, that's the next words out of your if you knew the words. That's what they did. They studied script, the, the Old Testament. I mean, the, the scrolls, the Psalms, the prophets. That's what they did. They were supposed to. The kings were supposed to write out a copy of the scripture for themselves, uh, the first five books, and study them for themselves. Write out their own copy and then read it over and over and over. Didn't ring a bell to anyone? Interesting. But thank God for us, we have scripture. And also for... Uh, Everyone today and going on into the future, we have scripture. It's complete. Anyone who reads through scripture, reads through the book of John, is going to get some inkling of an idea of what's going on. They won't even read Psalm 53. I mean, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, um, maybe a couple of the portions in any Jewish facility, temple function. They won't do it. They act like it doesn't exist. It's right there. I mean, you literally have to skip the page. Why? It, anyone who reads that is going to say, that, that's talking about Christ. It's obvious. So praise God we have a complete scripture that reveals to us through and through that there was a son who was promised to come, came, and died, died for all men. Moving on to verse... Well, we didn't read through, so read through six. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. They're mocking him, shaming him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. That was a really uh, interesting line. I was cast upon you from birth. I mean... Most of us who've witnessed a birth, they've, you've seen. I, I've watched all my, all four of my children born, and they didn't hand me the baby when the baby was born. They gave it to mom. So I think I would, I would just submit that that's the idea. We have a very unique child here. This is not just any baby, and he belongs somewhere else. He belongs to someone else. He's part of something completely different. So it's almost as if he was cast on, cast upon you, placed into the hands of the father instead of the mother, as it were, in the imagery. 
And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. There's no one that's ever been born that can say God has been their God since from the womb. We've all been born sinners. But he was from the womb. It was his God. God was his God. And then the cry is again, be not far from me. For trouble is near. There's none to help. Who can carry the weight of sin? Who can bear this cup? He was qualified by heaven. There was no one else. That's, there is nothing more he could say. Trouble is near. There is none to help. Many strong bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Bashan was the, plant, the land of Og, king of Bashan and Goliath. All these giants came from that land. They were also known for big animals. They had huge oxen. They were called aurochs, actually. I looked it up, and uh, they look kind of weird, but they're big. And they don't even exist anymore. They're, there's actually a pe- group in Sweden that are trying to genetically re-engineer them, introduce the strain, and bring them back, and they have succeeded, apparently. I don't know. That's a little creepy, but whatever. Um, but these things are massive. And one of the ways that they would torture people back then was to tie men between the horns of these giant oxen and let them loose. You can imagine. You, we've all seen a rodeo, but they're on the back of the cow or the bull. What if you were tied to the horns or the front part? You're going to get impaled. And supposedly the way it was done was hands on one side, feet on the other. And that ties into this idea of piercing the hands and feet. Be a lot more piercing, though. That's, it would be a very violent affair. Most would not be surviving that kind of torture. Huge bulls. And they speak of these proud Pharisees and Sadducees that encircled our Lord, raging, roaring at him. We see that scene at the, at the high priest's house, yelling at him, punching him, slapping him in the face, blaspheming him, when in fact they are the ones who are blaspheming before their, their very creator. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws and you have brought me to the dust of death. You pour out a cup of water, you're not getting it back. It's gone. It's just, there's no way to scoop it back up. All these descriptions of just being spent, weary, the physical uh, um, pain and stress, stressors on his body. My limbs are out of joint. I've never dislocated an arm or a leg. I've heard any kind of dislocation is painful. If any of you have experienced that, you can well imagine. Uh, he is describing it as all his bones are out of joint. Can't even imagine what that's like. I watched a couple of um, demonstrative videos on how flogging was done in Roman time and on nautical ships especially. I'm glad that wasn't around when I was in the Navy. Uh, I mean, they just used ropes. It was just ropes with knots in them, and they were whipping uh, like a pork belly or something, whatever. It's just a piece of meat, but it was doing some serious damage. That's just with rope. And the Romans used the cat of nine tails, had pieces of bone and glass or metal. I mean, it was meant to cause massive lacerations, which would cause massive bleeding and the maximum amount of pain. It was all about suffering, not just ending the life. They wanted them to suffer. So that we see these, these physical descriptions of pain, the emotional drain. 
And then we read, uh, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Obviously a description of uh, crucifixion, which wasn't even invented yet. We've all heard that. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I shared this once on a Sunday. I'd like to share it again. That idea of casting lots um, for for the Lord's clothing Exodus 28. Exodus 28, it says, um, the, the priest, uh, Exodus 28, 32, if you're going to turn to it. The priest had garments that were made, and they were specifically reinforced around the neck. Specifically reinforced around the neck. Because they didn't want you to tear them. And then in Leviticus uh, 21.10, we see the rules of conduct for a priest. And the priests were not to ever tear their clothes. So you had double protection to not do what you were not supposed to do. I mean, the Lord is very thorough. He knows men. So your clothes are made not to be torn. You're told not to tear it. What do we see the high priest do in front of Jesus? Tear his clothes. And he says, you blaspheme. What about you? Never thought that. But then look at what we see. It says, they divided my garments among them. The soldiers were going to throw dice or whatever it was, gamble for the cloth because it was a single piece. They didn't want to tear it. And it just reminded me that, you know, the Lord never tore his robe. He was perfect. It's just one small picture of his perfection. Whereas the man who stands as the high priest between the nation of Israel and God is faulty. He has problems. He has obvious sin. There are two high priests. I had to look that up. I, I never really noticed that. It says there were two high priests. And if you look up uh, high priests throughout the Old Testament, there's only four mentions. Four. And they're all in the singular. The high priest among his brethren, consecrated to put on the garments, not them for two. The high, the high priest, the high priest, the high priest. There are numbers in Leviticus. So where did this come from? How did they come up with two high priests? <clears throat> well, when we, re- when we remove from our vision and practice the things that are heavenly, what's prescribed by God, we're going to replace them with something of our own making. And this is the problem. This is where we'll fall. And this is obviously what men did. There's no instruction anywhere to have two high priests. And they just happen to be father-in-law and son-in-law. That's convenient. So obviously there's some kind of, I mean, I don't, I didn't find anything about historical context on why or whatever. They may have, may or may not have changed the rules, but we only have one high priest and Christ followed the example again, showing his perfection. We have such a great high priest. One, there can only be one. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. Verse 19. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Again, back to Zechariah 13, we see this, uh, the Lord saying, strike the shepherd with the sword. Um, We can uh, see that imagery of the 
the blade that was stopped for Isaac, but the blade of judgment, if you will, that was not stopped for the Lord. Interesting. If you look back in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 4, just again going over the people that were around at the crucifixion, the passerbys, they were passersby, um, people walking through, common people of the city. They were common people. They were followers of Jesus, women, disciples. You could say that they were of the congregation, uh, the congregation of the people of Israel, plus the people of Israel were there. Then there were chief priests, scribes, and elders. These would be rulers, according to Acts 4.8. These were considered rulers. Now listen, just listen to these words uh, from Leviticus chapter 4. It's talking about the sin offering, which incidentally is what chapter 22 is about. Uh, it's, there's four, um, four uh, psalms that talk about the death of Christ specifically. And they are, let's see, chapter 40, it would be the burnt offering revealing God's purpose. Chapter 22 is the sin offering describes the passion. Uh, chap, uh, Psalm 69 is the trespass offering and the penalty. Psalm 118 is the peace offering, offering the prophetic program. This is a one commentator's um, uh, concept they put together. I'm assuming it's multiple commentators. Uh, and this one happens, 22 is the sin offering. So I just thought it was an interesting coincidence. Chapter 4 is a sin offering. Describes the sin offering. So listen to what it says. Uh, verse 13 of chapter 4. Now if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and then it prescribes certain criteria, things that were to be sacrificed, and it ends in 20, that it shall be forgiven them. Verse 22, when a ruler has sinned, it prescribes certain criteria. Verse 26, it shall be forgiven him. 27, excuse me. If any one of the common people sin, criteria, prescription, verse 31, it shall be forgiven them. Now look back at the beginning of the chapter. Verse 3, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, this is the anointed priest, and he prescribes what's to be done for him, and it ends in verse 12. You just don't see the words, it shall be forgiven him. Now, I know he's forgiven. We know that. The Lord prescribed something. But the Lord is also the holy editor, if you will, and he left that out for a reason. I'm not trying to spiritualize anything or make something. I'm sure I'm not the first one who saw this, but it's interesting that the congregation, the ruler, and the common people all have their sins forgiven. But the anointed priest, it doesn't say it's forgiven him. Now, we have a a great high priest, and he was crucified among common people, rulers, and the congregation. And he even from the cross said, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do, but he bore the punishment. It wasn't forgiven him. He bore the punishment. He bore the full wrath of God on your behalf and mine. Again, not to over-spiritualize, I just something I noticed. In verse 21, save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. We talked about the aurochs or the wild oxen, these big uh, oxen, the pictures of these proud uh, Sadducees and Pharisees. We have the lion, a picture of the a picture of Satan, <clears throat> the dog, the Romans, the Gentiles. 
these uh, specific, um, specific animals used, all of them are in a violent setting. They're all trying to literally tear the Lord apart. And that's through the influence of Satan. And it's happening. They're, they're doing it to him. They've made him like no man. It says, I, 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 you can't even recognize him. That's the descriptions given. Verse 21 ends. You have answered me. <clears throat> you have answered me. And the hymn writer writes, he who is he from the grave comes to succor, help and save. Tis the Lord, a wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the king of glory. It's done. He said it's finished. It's done. Death has been defeated. He wasn't just saved from death. He has been saved out of death so that we can be saved from death. As one commentator put it, communion has been restored in the Godhead. And we see this in the following verses. We'll see this ever widening circle of influence to whom salvation is now available. 22. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him and all you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. Oh, did I go past it? No. Uh, I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the ends of the world. So we see the assembly, which is uh, also in Hebrews. um, Hebrews 2.12 Assembly translated the church uh, descendants of Jacob. We have Israel and then all the ends of the world. So this as the psalmist progresses in his in this now the song of the savior, this unbroken song, as one commentator put it, ever widening circles of influence and people groups are now being accepted or given the opportunity to now have salvation. First, it was the assembly and the and Israel. Now it's all the world. <clears throat> That's where the chapter will end. Uh, in the in the millennial kingdom, that thousand year reign, I will declare your name to my brethren. The Lord is no longer the Lord is not ashamed to call his brethren. Isn't that nice? There was a time where men could not even approach him. I think about the Israelites; they couldn't even come near the mountain. They put a fence around it. Anyone touched it was going to die. Any animal that touched it would be put to death. Only uh, Moses could go up. There was a time of separation. I'm glad I'm not in that time of separation. Aren't you? And he calls us his brethren. And he's not ashamed to do it. And again, that verse in, um, in Mark. <clears throat> Is it Mark? Anyway, he says, he says to, the, to the women, go tell my brethren to meet me in Galilee. Interesting. Uh, again, the Lord tells them, go, go meet me in Galilee. That's away from where the crucifixion was. They go north to Galilee. He meets them there. And then it says he went with them as far as Bethany. They came back south. They walked. There wasn't a train or anything. So they walked to Bethany and then he ascended. I thought that was a great picture for us uh, of what we what we do. We separate from 
everything, don't we, when we come to the Lord? This is moment of brokenness uh, where we separate and meet him. And then this idea of walking with the Lord. That's what we do. That's what he calls us to do. We walk with him. And what's he doing? He's telling them about him. He's telling them about his plan for them, what they're going to do. That's what we see in Scripture. As we read through Scripture, we see the Lord reveal himself to us. We see his plan for us, his instructions for us, our conduct, how we're to live, and what we can look forward to. We see these. um, the, The disciples went up to Galilee. We separate from the world. They meet with the Lord. We meet with the Lord. They walk with the Lord toward Bethany, Jerusalem, which is the house of God. We walk toward, walk with the Lord in fellowship with him, growing in our spiritual life. The disciples, they parted with the Savior. We get to look forward to meeting our Savior and being reunited with them. Isn't that nice? I like that. I like that picture. I don't know if that's a real picture or not, but uh, I thought that was uh, a neat little thing that was just kind of tucked in there for our encouragement. All the ends of the world, verse 27, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation shall worship before you for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. This hymn writer again, this, this hymn just kept almost every line just seemed to go along with the song. So I just, uh, with the chapter. So I just put in the verses as it seemed fit. Who is he from his throne rules through all the world alone? Tis the Lord, a wonder story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory at his feet. We humbly fall crown him, crown him. Lord of all. And that basically describes what we're seeing here. All the nations of the world, all the families of the nations shall worship before you. The kingdom, verse 28, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even he who cannot keep himself alive. Um, This is roughly the um, millennial kingdom, thousand year reign is where we're at. Uh, Zechariah. Zechariah fourteen sixteen. We see the day of the Lord in the beginning of the chapter. We'll see the day of the Lord, all the events that take place. And then verse 16, it shall come to pass that everyone who is le- who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Interesting. The Feast of Tabernacles will be reinstituted. All the nations will come. And if you don't come, you don't get rain. If you don't come to worship, you don't get rain during that time. You don't eat. It'll be a, an iron rule, I think, is the, um, the term used. All will know. And we have these uh, interesting uh, thoughts and descriptions of people. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. Um, I looked at a couple of different thoughts. Uh, most seem to agree. Those who are going down, are down to the dust or stooping down to the dust are talking about those who are down and out, poor, um, barely getting by, that kind of thing. The, in verse 29, we see the prosperous of the earth. Then we see these poor. And then we see those who cannot keep himself alive. There are people on the verge of death or about to die, sick, sickly. All will be welcome. 
all will be welcome. Again, another picture of that. All nations, everyone is, uh, has the option to come and feast with the king. <clears throat> Verse 30, posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. Uh, I didn't. I think basically what this is talking about here, and, and please correct me. Um, during that time, there will still be people who are alive that will be having children. And at the end of that thousand years, it says Satan will be released to go and gather up an army, and he will. There are many that will be swayed. So during that thousand years, there's going to be many that will be born that need to hear the gospel. There will be generations that are born. Every generation will have those faithful witnesses sharing the gospel with those that are born. I believe that's what's being addressed here. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. See, men have a tendency to forget, don't we? We see that uh, right after Joshua died, it said after his generation died, there rose up a whole generation that didn't know the Lord. How does that happen? One generation ago, seas were parting. You were being fed from the sky. Aaron, I'll never forget this. Aaron mentioned once, he said if Abraham had just stayed in the desert, he would have seen manna fall from the sky. If we would just listen, it's like we forget. We, we don't see these things, and that's our nature, and that's why we need the Lord, obviously. But they will come, this generation, and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done this. The Lord is the one who has brought about peace. The Lord is the one who has destroyed death and given men this privilege of being called children of God. <clears throat> It's obviously a lot of material here. I'm sure I didn't cover everything, but I hope those thoughts were um, encouraging. Um, The Lord was qualified by heaven, vilified by his brethren, crucified without cause, but glorified by God. That's our God. That's our Savior. That's who we worship. This psalm speaks of him. Other psalms speak of him. And we have the privilege of opening up his word to read and have him speak to us individually. And that's a privilege too. David says, I have not departed from your law for you yourself have taught me. It's personal. I feel like as I'm older, as I learn things, especially from my children, I feel like I can relate to that now. I see the difference that a father Uh, has a role to play in how he does that with his children and showing mercy, not showing mercy. You kind of, you see that more as you're older and as you're in the situation, I don't deserve the Lord's mercy. And I, I, you see that played out as a father. Should you show mercy? Well, that'd be the nice thing to do, but spare the, don't spare the rod. Otherwise you'll spoil the child. Okay. But the father, it seems like he almost always spares me. I should just be crushed. I should. Thank the Lord that he is, <clears throat> Matt once said, talking about the attributes of the Lord, he is infinitely gracious. Thank the Lord for his infinite graciousness 
and that he gives us that opportunity to come to him, confess our sins, we join in fellowship with him, and we move on for him. God, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this time you've given to us. So thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, which shows us uh, from your word more about you, who you are, and what you would have in store for us, and our, the conduct that we should live by. And um, as we dig deeper and we um, converse with one another and study these things, we see more and more the beauty of who you are and the amazing privilege it is to be called a child of God and the incredible salvation that you've created in eternity past, planned just for us before any, any of this was even created. What, a, what an amazing uh, privilege it is to be a child of God. We just thank you for your son. Thank you for his sacrifice on the cross, Lord. We just pray that... Um, Whatever was said tonight would be an encouragement to everyone here and, um, and that you would be glorified in all that we do. Lord, we just commit this time into your hands. Pray for the rest of our evening and our journey back home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.